Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with two recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Sabrina. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high-redshift universe, both observationally and theoretically. You're listening to episode 66, B-Field Bonanza. Today, as the title suggests, we're going to be tackling magnetic fields. And magnetic fields in astronomy are a little bit like cilantro. You either hate it or love it. (laughs) You know, sometimes we'll have people that are a little bit wary of B-Fields or the ones that are actually doing research and just geniuses in my mind. Kirsten, are you a hate it or love it with respect to cilantro? Oh, I think I think I might hate it. <laughs> you think you hate it. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I feel like I'm one of those weird people that fall in the middle where it's like, you're all right, but I don't want too much of you, you know? Does it taste like soap to you? No, it doesn't taste like soap. Oh. But apparently that's like a genetic thing. I can yeah, see that. I heard that too. Maybe it's a genetic thing with people who hate magnetic fields. I think so. It probably is. <laughs> Okay, so let's get into some of these intro questions. What is a magnetic field? So I think there are a couple ways to think about B fields. Maybe the first encounter you ever had with a B field was when you were like playing with magnets in elementary school. You're actually playing with magnetic materials, right? You're like putting the poles together. If they were attractive, you'd feel an attractive force. And if the poles were uh, the same, then you would feel an opposing force. Um, so I think that's sort of the first introduction that we have to the magnetic field, but probably in your electricity and magnetism class, you got introduced to B fields through Maxwell's equations and B fields are actually produced by electric currents. So moving charges and magnetic materials like you might've played with when you were younger. So in Maxwell's equations, there are three out of four of those laws cover the B field. The first one is Gauss's law for magnetism. So there are no magnetic monopoles. I remember my physics teacher being like, just ignore this one. But I think it's kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there some like very early universe magnetic monopole research? I don't know. There's Magnetic monopoles are studied by theorists. It's interesting. I always hear about magnetic monopoles with respect to like if UFOs were propelled by magnetic monopoles, then that would be a way they could move so uh, efficiently. Really? I don't know how, like, scientific that is. That sounds so interesting. Every single time I think of, like, magnetic monopoles, I'm like, I just hope that someone discovers it. But then, of course, I don't do anything with magnetic fields. I just want someone else to do the thing. (laughs) The last two laws that cover the B field are induction, which, you know, is a changing magnetic flux inducing an E field. So maybe you remember from physics where you had like a circular ring and then you like put the magnet in and out of the ring and you would induce some current. And then Ampere's law, 
which is a changing E field inducing a B field. So these maybe sound super general, but when it comes down to it in the universe, when magnetic fields are being produced, there's something of this sort happening when you really break it down. And maybe we'll get a lot more complicated today in this episode, but fundamentally, you can rely on Maxwell's equations to bring you back to the basics. That was a very in-depth description, and I love it. Now that we know what magnetic fields are, how exactly do we observe them? Well, there are a couple of different techniques. A lot of times, the strength of magnetic fields are inferred using other observations. I'll just use one specific technique as an example here called spectropolarimetry. This is a measure of the polarization of light across a range of wavelengths. So we know that magnetic fields induce polarization in light. They cause it to change its intensity along particular orthogonal axes. And by using this particular method, spectropolarimetry, we can measure the strength of the magnetic field infer it from how the light changes uh, when it passes through it. But one big caveat is that this only works at the surface of a magnetized body, and magnetic fields can vary pretty dramatically throughout astrophysical objects. So to measure the magnetic fields internal to a body like a star, we have to infer them by other means, as I'll talk about in more detail in my astrobite. I had no idea about that. That sounds super interesting. I can't wait for your bite. So now that we know how they're observed, what they are, how common is it to find objects with B fields? So it's super common. I think all objects in space are embedded in some sort of magnetic field, you know, even between galaxies and galaxy clusters. So maybe these B fields are weaker than those magnets from your sixth grade science class, but they affect the movement in our universe a whole lot more. So B fields in stellar formation, it's actually an essential component because the B fields actually act to help remove angular momentum from the protostellar cloud as it's collapsing. They also act to distribute energy during the violent explosion of stars at the end of their lives. And I guess a bit closer to home with my bite today, where do the magnetic fields that we actually see in planets come from? So we know our favorite planet Earth you probably know that the magnetic fields of Earth prevents the solar wind from destroying us all, killing us all, and UV and cosmic rays from penetrating the atmosphere. But how many planetary scientists speculate that these magnetic fields are caused is through this thing called a dynamo. So it's actually all back to what I was saying earlier. So if we Think back to the Ampere's circuit law that states a magnetic field is created by an electric current and it's proportional to the size of the electric current. That statement there actually explains why dynamos are happening. What's happening is there's this convecting moving fluid inside of a planet. So you need these three ingredients. You need a conducting fluid. So for example, liquid iron in Earth, or maybe it's ionized gas in the sun. You need some rotation or some kinetic energy, and then you need something to drive the planet's convection. And that moving conducting fluid, you might think, oh, that's actually a moving electric field, and that's what's inducing the B field and causing the dynamo. So this is important for my bite later today, because I will be talking about magnetic fields in planets. I want to re-emphasize what you said at the very beginning of your answer about how magnetic fields carry angular momentum away from clouds that then collapse into uh, stellar systems, because it's actually 
one of the theories proposed to explain how you even form stars to begin with. I mean, this is like, if you didn't have magnetic fields, then when you collapsed the cloud into something the size of the star, it would be spinning so quickly that it wouldn't be stable. So magnetic fields, magnetic breaking is the process that it's called, is invoked to be able to explain how we get any stars at all. I just think that that's like a fascinating uh, principle. Okay, I'm glad I chose that one and didn't describe galactic magnetism. <laughs> a weird exception to how ubiquitous magnetic fields are, black holes. Oh. There's the so-called no-hair theorem that states that the characteristics of a black hole are completely determined by its mass, electric charge, and angular momentum. So if we're being technical, the accretion disk that surrounds a black hole has an induced magnetic field more often than not, but the black hole itself does not. So the black hole itself doesn't produce a magnetic field, is what you're saying. It's just potentially sitting in one. Right. I mean, we're sitting in a B field, too, so. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we know that there are tons of objects that are affected, and I think that you guys even hit on my next question, do they have significant impacts already? So I think it's time to go ahead and move on into our first bite. Alex, you want to take it away? Definitely. My astrobite is called the first inference of a magnetic field inside a main sequence star. Pretty straightforward. It was written by Lindsay DeMarkey, who is a wonderful human being and friend of mine, based on a paper by Lekoane and others published in May of this year. So we provided a little bit of background into spectropolarimetry and how we measure magnetic fields at the surface of a star. But as I mentioned, the strength of the magnetic field can vary quite dramatically when you dig deeper and deeper and get closer to the center of the star. And magnetic fields, of course, we don't know in incredible detail, but we think that they alter the inner cores of stars in a way that affects their evolution in pretty significant ways. So we need to find some way to infer the strength of the magnetic field at the core to better look at what it's doing in the star over time. So how do you measure magnetic fields deep within the star where you can't directly observe? Enter asteroseismology. Asteroseismology, asteroseismology, the study of stellar pulsations. So stars, as we know, jiggle like a massive sphere of jello. <laughs> Maybe that's not a great analogy, but if you can imagine it. I love that analogy. We're lucky that they do because these vibrations lead to observational differences in the surface brightness of a star. So we have direct observational evidence of them, and they reflect internal processes that are deep within the star where our instruments can't reach. So they provide kind of this missing link from the surface down to deep within the center. And this paper focuses on the asteroseismological study of one nearby B-type star called HD 43317. A little bit of background, the star is about five solar masses, it's sitting very comfortably on the main sequence, and previous spectropolarimetric measurements have given us a surface magnetic field strength of 1300 gauss, or about a thousand times that measured at the surface of the sun. But the star also exhibits optical brightness fluctuations, it gets brighter and dimmer, which indicate strong magnetic fields in the core that then change the oscillations and impact the brightness over time. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. Yes. Cool. 
All right, so here's the cool part. This work focused on what's called the gravity modes or the G modes of the star, which are oscillations that occur in the innermost radiative zone within a star that are pulled inward by gravity and pulled upward by uh, buoyancy, the same kind of buoyancy you'd imagine in the ocean. I never thought I would hear buoyancy in stars. Yeah, it's the restoring force for these types of oscillations deep within the star because the star is one big burning fluid. Now, a previous paper generated a magnetic field-free model of this star in MESA, and they found that the models for HD 43317 don't match the G-mode pulsations that are inferred from the stellar variability. Okay, you don't get the same G-modes that you would expect if you just looked at the variability on the surface. Is this because MESA doesn't allow you to include magnetic fields? Is it not a magnetohydrodynamic simulation? Or like, can you explain a bit about what MESA is, maybe? MESA is now an open source code. It used to be a private code. It stands for Modules for Experiments in Stellar Astrophysics. And it is an open source 1D stellar evolution code. It's one dimensional, so you can't do any complex things in 3D. But it's really useful for starting a system, evolving it, and seeing how kind of the density, temperature structures as a function of radius change over time. Okay. So maybe you're going to say this, but it doesn't include any magnetohydrodynamics. Is that correct? It does not. That's correct. Yes. And I also think that because they just didn't have a good understanding of what the magnetic field looked like, even if you had a a model with MHD, how would you be able to put that in in a realistic way? So they just started with the simplest model possible to try and understand what was going on. And what they got was that the G-mode oscillations that you infer with magnetic field-free model are not what's observed on the surface. Specifically, there are a lot of low-frequency G-modes in the simulations that weren't actually detected. So is the idea here that magnetic fields in stars are not strong enough to be detected and therefore they're not worth putting in these models? So the problem is not that the magnetic field strength is too low in the center for us to detect it. It's that we just don't have a direct way of measuring it in the core. This lack of low-frequency G-mode oscillations suggest that maybe strong magnetic fields in the core are doing some damping on the low-frequency oscillations. They're affecting it in a way that you don't observe these low-frequency oscillations. And so to test this, the authors of this study wrote down a series of partially differential equations for the star's G-mode oscillations if they were to interact with a magnetic field of a particular strength. And they then used a code called Daedalus, and it's a differential equation uh, integrator, and they integrated these equations and sampled the solutions for a range of different magnetic field strengths to infer what range of G-mode oscillations you should get in that star. And by doing this sampling, they found the central magnetic field that seems to match the range of both observed and unobserved G-modes. So they found much greater agreement in that a particular strength of magnetic field actually is successful at doing this damping. And the strength of the magnetic field that they infer is, drum roll please, 5 times 10 to the 5 Gauss. Oh. This is incredibly strong. It might not sound like it. It's incredibly strong. 10 to the 5 times that of the sun. 
uh, the surface of the sun at least. And this agrees with previous models for GMO damping in general. And it's the first time that the magnetic field internal to a main sequence star was ever inferred. That's huge. Yeah, and it's big news. Yeah, but also the magnetic field is huge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> also that. For like pulsars, obviously it's going to be smaller, but I'm wondering what the magnetic field for pulsars are, like 10 to the... So there's different type of neutron stars, right? The magnetars, which have the strongest B field, it's like 10 to the 15 gauss maybe is the maximum. What was yours again? 10 to the 5th? 10 to the 5, yeah. 10 orders of magnitude weaker. Okay, but for a main sequence star, it's a lot higher than I would have expected. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because it makes you wonder to what extent really strong magnetic fields central to main sequence stars are affecting their evolution all this time and we just never knew. That's a really interesting question and I bet someone's going to probably start doing some research on that because I imagine that it would have a pretty decent effect if it's got a ridiculously strong magnetic field. And that is the paper. Yay! <laughs> that was a good one. Thanks for bringing us that bite. Yeah, sure thing. Okay, so now for the best part of the episode, <laughs> I'm claiming it just because <laughs> I am so excited about this, the sonification that we have this week. So go ahead and close your eyes and let's get into this. So what do you guys think? I'm stumped. Dang. I the beginning reminded me of like I just thought of hippos like walking like boom 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 boom. My only guess was some sort of like accretion disk or collisions of some sort when the planet was going through a particularly dense region. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of some trying to hear some broad pattern in the data but it seemed all over the place yeah i do think it's some kind of like poisson statistics detections of something i have no idea <laughs> okay are those your final answers I think so, yeah. Counting statistics of a hippo. <laughs> Counting statistics of a hippo. <laughs> okay, so this is the Earth's magnetic field. Oh. Huh. Variations in the Earth's magnetic field. 
which you talked about it earlier, these variations we're hearing are from solar winds. So this is super cool because this sonification was from 1970. Whoa. Yeah. So it was from 1970, and the composer is Charles Dodge. Basically, these physicists, these three physicists, Bruce Bowler, Carl Frederick, and Stephen Ungar, they worked with a composer to sonify this data. And if you are really interested and would like to actually replicate this if you play an instrument, they actually have sheet music for it. (laughs) Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, it's super cool. That's why I was super excited. I was like, I never thought I would find a sonification from 1970. They basically used electronic instruments. And this was the time when, what is it called? The theremin? The theremin. Yeah, since it's 14 minutes long, they actually include some other like things like the theremin and stuff like that into it. It's pretty cool. Do you know if it was performed anywhere? I don't know. Obviously, it was recorded, but they recorded it, and it was like a release, like a record release. Cool. So I guess it is kind of charged particles colliding with the Earth's magnetic field, yeah. right? No? <laughs> I'm trying to spin my answer. Imagine having like a really nerdy astrophysics party, and like you put on a record, and you're like, wait, this is this is a good one, guys. <laughs> It's like the Earth's magnetic field. So it's field. variations in the magnetic field caused by the solar wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it like a line plot of the intensity of the magnetic field sonified? They don't actually show the data. They just say it's data from the fluctuations in the magnetic field. They say that the pitch and the like frequency is related to the magnetic field, but the obviously the choice in instrument is very clearly not. <laughs> and the speed at which the notes are played, do you know what that corresponds to? Basically the variations, how quickly the magnetic field is changing at that time. So it must be that at that particular time, it's getting a lot more bombardment for whatever reason from solar winds. Did they mention anything about the time period over which this, this isn't real time, is it? It doesn't say the exact time, but it's, 2920 data points and it is compressed yeah cool yeah that's a really good find thanks yeah i stumbled upon it and i was just too excited i had to share sonification throwback (laughs) i know right (laughs) okay enough talking about the super awesome sonification i think it's about time to get into some other planets magnetic fields um so yeah sabrina Sure. So my astrobite today is called Detecting Exoplanets Elusive Magnetic Fields with Radio Transits. It's by Macy Huston. And the original paper title is Exoplanet Radio Transits as a Probe for Exoplanetary Magnetic Fields, Time-Dependent Magnetohydrodynamic Simulations. Magnetohydrodynamic is going to be MHD from now on. Okay, everyone? (laughs) (laughs) it's by sumitra hasra ofer cohen and igor v sokolov so we've already heard a lot about magnetic fields today we know magnetic fields protect our ozone again from the solar wind and we've actually already observed radio emission from jupiter and ganymede this is the first radio emission that we observed from a planet outside of our own And Jupiter was first found to emit in the radio in 1955. It's actually sometimes the brightest source in the sky in the radio. 
depending on which frequency you're looking at and in the orbit that we're seeing Jupiter. But the way that we see Jupiter's radio emission produced is through the interactions of the solar wind with the magnetosphere of Jupiter. So the magnetosphere is just the area around a body where charged particles are affected by its B field. So this is really similar to the aurora borealis that we might see in Alaska or Iceland or some other like very north northern place on Earth. I guess this is kind of related to the space sound today. So the same electrons that produce the aurora on Jupiter are believed to be causing the radio emission. So this type of radio emission is probably too weak to be observed with current instruments of exoplanets. So the authors of this paper propose a method of using radio transits to measure B fields in exoplanets. So actually measuring the interaction between the host star and the B fields of the planet, which could potentially be detectable with upcoming instruments. I already discussed a bit about where we think these B-fields come from in planets. They come from dynamos. And dynamos actually can explain why these magnetic fields are maintained on such large timescales. Again, this is sort of a speculated reason for B-fields and what a lot of theorists working on magnetic fields and exoplanets have come up with. So we know that most exoplanets are discovered using the transit method and optical where the stars are super bright and the planet passes in front of it and causes these little periodic dips, and that's how we can detect an exoplanet. The authors in this bite propose that it's the stellar corona that's sort of extending beyond the host star, and you can expect that it becomes less strong and hot as you go out from the star. And these plasmas are crazy, right? So this corona is extending super far. Plasma physics is a whole other thing. All you MHD simulating people can can explain it way better than me, but they contain all these charged particles. So the way that the plasmas or the coronas of these host stars are emitting this radio emission is from what's called free-free emission or Bremsstrahlung, breaking radiation. So it actually happens in the coronaplasma of our own star, the sun. So it occurs when a charged particle is accelerated. We remember from physics 101 that charged particles accelerated create radiation. So it happens when a charged particle is accelerated by the E-field of another charged particle, and we get this free-free emission or Bremsstrahlung emission that we can observe in the radio. So potentially, a hot Jupiter or very close-in planet that has a B-field, and, and therefore a magnetosphere, could potentially be affecting the radio output of its host star. It's going through this coronal plasma, and it's sort of interacting with all these particles as it goes in its orbit. Does that mean if you look in the radio, then during each of these transit events, you should expect to see a little contribution to the radio output caused by this interaction? Yeah, that's exactly the entire point of this paper okay. and what the authors are speculating. So I think you just summarized it. That would have to be on a pretty short period, right? So hot Jupiters, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, so this kind of leads into the methodology of the paper. So they haven't actually observed this ever. They've just simulated it a lot. But they use another MHD code and what's called the Alvin Wave Solar Atmosphere Model to study this interaction between a planet and a star. They use real observations from a star that has a hot Jupiter. I guess it's the closest star that has a hot Jupiter, HD 189733, if that means anything to you. I know it well. <laughs> you do? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never heard of that before in my life. 
They use a model planet with a relatively large radius at 20%, the radius of the sun, so hot Jupiter-like. And then to get sort of back to Kirsten's question, they use two circular orbits that are 10 times the host star radius and 20 times the host star radius. So you can imagine, as I was saying, that coronal plasma that's extending from the host star gets less dense and less hot as you go further and further out. So that's why they're trying to probe two different regions of the orbit with these semi-major axes. When you say they use real observations from that system to constrain their simulations, what observations are they using? I think by this they mean like the mass and radius of this star that they've constrained from observations. So they also try out a bunch of different B fields for these planets. They try out no B field, they try out Earth's magnetic field at 0.3 gauss, they try out a relatively high B field at 3 gauss, and they use this fancy ray tracing algorithm which is basically calculating the path of light through systems with various indices of refraction, absorption, and reflection. A lot of GPS satellite people use this to determine how your localization is going to be affected depending on where you're standing in a city, if that makes it any more easy to visualize in your brain. They simulate how this coronal emission propagates through the medium and is affected by this planet in orbit around the star. They translate these simulations into synthetic radio images where the planet is in different places around its host star with sort of bright spots where the planet is. So if you go ahead and look at the astrobite, you can see in one of their main images, there's a bright spot wherever the planet is in these simulated translated synthetic images. So what's happening is there's this coronal compression going on. So the planet will actually act to change and compress the corona as it moves through the orbit. And when there's more compression going on, there's higher emission and it has like a tail trailing in its orbit. When the planet is in front of the star, so that's kind of analogous to what's going on in the optical transit method, the planet causes changes in radio emission from the star, which is exactly what the authors hope to observe with radio transits. And then again, further from the star, where the coronal emission is less energetic, where they modeled the planet that's further out in its orbit, they expect to measure changes in lower frequencies, less energetic. Again, Alex sort of already got to this, but the authors anticipate that variations in the light curves from these synthetic images hint to potentially being able to constrain the B field of the planet. And... If they can do that, they can actually take the difference between the min and max flux in the light curves and determine the planet's semi-major axis, the B-field strength, and also use the frequency of observation uh, with all of this. But we also know that the B-field has potentially even effects on the habitability of planets, right? We know our own B-field is protecting our planet and making it habitable. If they can constrained B-fields on other planets, they can also rule out or say, hmm, this planet actually might be more habitable. So I think it has potential effects on habitability of planets. I know that you said that they haven't actually detected this yet, so this is kind of a theoretical paper, but did they mention how strong the magnetic field would need to be to actually detect it? They only use like no B-field and Earth's magnetic field and a super strong magnetic field, and all of these produce different types of variation. The stronger the magnetic field, the larger the variation in the radio of the stellar emission. So I don't think they placed like a constraint on it, but they just showed like a bunch of different cases. I would think, maybe this isn't the case, but I would assume that there's a degeneracy 
with the magnetic field of the star and the magnetic field of the planet? And how could you disentangle the two with the brightness variations in the radio? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think they're saying that the magnetic field contribution at that point, as the planet is transiting in front of the star, is causing a larger change in radio as it's moving, whereas the stellar magnetic field would be relatively static. So it's like the variation in the magnetic field. It would be a variation in the way that light is like propagating out from the star. Oh, I see what you're saying. So basically what you're saying is if there's a stronger magnetic field in the radio for a planet, you'll have a deeper transit, essentially? I don't know if it's necessarily deeper, but it's a stronger variation in radio emission. I I don't know if you can translate it to deeper transit because it's causing like the compression of the corona, which I guess would lead to less radio emission from that part. I think it's a dip. They simulate all of these different orbits, these different B fields for this planet and its host star. And to kind of clarify all of that, the closer in the star is with the stronger B fields, it's closer in to this denser, hotter part of the coronal plasma, and they'll see larger radio transits. But this is probably really difficult to detect with current technology. Potentially stronger radio emission like flares, which is also super interesting, would be more easily detectable because that's an even bigger radio transit. But they also mentioned that the square kilometer array, which is this upcoming very, very intense radio array that's going to be the most powerful radio array ever built, might make this possible. I'm always very impressed by these theory papers that make direct observational predictions that presumably very soon we'll be able to get tested. I think that's super cool. I think the reason they're doing it is to set up for for actually doing this when observations come out, right? It seems like for every single mission that's about to come out, you always have a ton of like, what will we detect with, you know, those sorts of papers. Thank you so much for bringing us that bite, Sabrina. And I think that it's time for our one sentence summaries. So we're going to mix things up. Sabrina, you want to go first? Sure. So my one sentence summary is as follows. Measuring the radio analog of optical transients may be possible and allow us to constrain the magnetic fields of exoplanets in the near future. Alex? Stellar oscillations provide a missing link between the surface of a star and its poorly probed interior and they've now revealed a strong magnetic field lurking at the heart of HD 43317. I love that. I think we only have time for one discussion question, and then we can wrap up. I wanted to ask you guys, why do you think that astronomers are so wary of magnetic fields, and or why is it kind of a polarizing topic for astronomers? (laughs) Pun intended. That was clever. (laughs) For me, I think it's just difficult to think about. I think a lot of the magnetohydrodynamic codes are pretty ominous to a lot of astronomers. There are people that work specifically on this, but then there's a lot of simulations that completely leave them out, like the MESA simulation, for example. I think it's just really hard and requires a lot of differential equations that are really hard to solve plasmas are super tricky it's a combination of a lot of subfields that the learning curve is 
pretty steep for, in my opinion. I would guess that they're hard to directly detect. A lot of times they're inferred. Something like dark matter or dark energy is a lot of the time too, and they don't nearly have as much hype as those fields. A lot of times they just are seen as almost like dust, I guess. They're seen as something that plague our observations of things that we directly measure and something that we have to subtract out when doing our analysis correctly. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You're definitely right. It does seem like that's a thing. But then at the same time, it's very clear that it's an important feature in and of itself for a lot of these objects. I also, to add on to this, when I was doing research for the discussion questions, I was sort of overwhelmed by how many different ways magnetic fields can affect galaxies, stars, planets in 10 different ways. So like maybe you can measure the rotation measure or the polarization in radio waves and determine something about the magnetic field of the galaxy itself. But then within that galaxy, there's also point sources that also have magnetic fields and there's dust. There's so much going on. It feels like a whole field of study in itself. I also think that in physics and astronomy, we want to think of astrophysical systems as isolated from their environment so that you can pick them apart as like these single entities and not have to worry about any of the complex interplay between them and their environments. And like angular momentum transfer by magnetic fields completely destroys all of that. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's just easier to think that they don't exist. (laughs) There are a couple of different things for exoplanets, like, for example, induction heating. Like, you can heat a planet's interior due to the magnetic field, which is kind of cool. But as cool as it is, there's these papers, but not a lot of, I guess, hype. I think that it is probably because it's really hard to model. And then also, magnetic fields are scary, although they are really cool. (laughs) Is that like tidal heating? Or I guess that's gravitational. (laughs) Yeah, the idea from induction heating is that you can even make a lava world like this. And I swear I'll shut up after this. But since the core is made out of iron and you've got this churning of the iron, if it's close enough to its star, kind of like how you can get radio transits, since it's moving through the B field of the star, you can actually end up getting induction heating where it can just melt your mantle and then you get lava planets. Dang. That's crazy. Okay, so Kirsten, if you had to say magnetic fields, hate them or love them? I would go with love them, but scared. (laughs) Love them, but a little nervous. Sabrina? I'm the same. Love them, but scared. I wish that I could just devote maybe like a year of my life to just thinking about magnetic fields. Then I would probably be like, I love them and I know them, but I just haven't. So (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a healthy amount of fear associated with magnetic fields for me. I'm like, ah... It's so beautiful. You're the right amount of afraid (laughs) at them. What about you, Alex? Man, well, now I can't say hate them. If y'all both said love them, clearly they're super important. Oh, do you hate them? I am one of those people where I feel like it's easier to just ignore them. But we spent so much time talking about how important that they are that maybe I'm coming around. I don't know. I think that in this situation, you need to double down and just say that you hate them if that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me in five episodes and I'll really be convinced. Right now, I would say hate them. Well, (laughs) now that we know how we feel about magnetic fields, I think that about wraps up this episode. This concludes episode 66 of Astro Soundbites, B-Filled Bonanza. 
If you want to read the two astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, check out all of them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs>